Welcome back to Scary Stories episode two. Hello. So yeah. I have I have a story to tell. Okay. I have ears to hear Nice. Convenient. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so this one is from the subreddit No Sleep, which I love and hate. They've gotten really not great over the past like year, mm-hmm. but they started out real strong and real horrifying. Mm-hmm. So if you like search through them and um you can like do search settings and do like the top ones mm-hmm. and those are usually the best. Mm-hmm. I should read those. Mm-hmm. It's uh horrifying. <laughs> Good luck. <laughs> um but this one kind of uh stood out for me. The the titles for these are just like really long and not real titles. So the title of this one is called, 10 years ago, I taught sophomore creative writing. Two student stories haunt me to this day. Is that just like the the first line of the story? It's not. Well, I mean, it's like a description of the story, but it's like... It's not, because like in poetry, if it it doesn't have a title, they just take like the first line. Oh, no. And make that the title. Because it's not, it's not... The name, the first huh. uh, sentence. Well, that's a terrible title. <laughs> thanks a lot, uh, red underscore grin. Yeah. Actually, no, but thanks a lot. <laughs> yeah. I like this. <laughs> so, here we go. Fresh out of college, I took a teaching job in a small town in central Wisconsin. In my sophomore creative writing class, I assigned a flash fiction exercise around Halloween. We'd studied urban legends and folklore. And it was the students' turn to construct stories of their own, Ooh, which I think is a really cool assignment. Fun, yeah. Um, so the assignment length had to be one hundred to one thousand words, and the directions were scare me. Ooh, great! It's cool. Love it. The submission quality was as expected. <laughs> <laughs> These were sophomores, after all. But one story stood out halfway through my stack of papers. A piece by a quiet student named Jake. His first-person flash fiction story seemed so real, like it was dipped in reality. A little too closely. Oh no, Jake. Almost like he wasn't making it up, but had been retelling something that happened to him. Oh no. I put it aside, impressed. Kate's submission was the last paper on the stack. I remember the reading experience vividly, the beads of sweat accumulating across my temples, the clickety-click of the red pen in my hand, (laughs) and a weird feeling of dread in the pit of my stomach. I placed it on top of Jake's story and thought, what the hell am I going to do? I still have photocopies of the original stories and often wonder, why do I still have them? But there's something about them. They are so interconnected that there is something so raw and beautiful about them. Mm-hmm. I have a strong affinity for interesting student writing, and it'd be a shame to let the flames of these stories be extinguished. But I'll share the student pieces and the subsequent events that transpired right here. I do enjoy a good story. Oh, God. So, the first one, Jake's Flash Fiction. My parents put Grandma Rosie in a home when she started to lose her grasp on reality, they said. I still found it cruel, but she seemed content. Content enough, I guess. I remember visiting her. She had an old wooden rocking chair that faced the window. Outside was nothing but flat fields of green. The green would eventually fade, and when it snowed, it was carpets of white for miles and miles. I'm not sure which season Grandma Rosie liked the most. She didn't do a lot of talking. She mainly listened to her radio, and always one station, 89.1. 
but 89.1 never had a signal. It was always static. Oh, God. Grandma Rosie listened to the static all day, seemingly waiting out her life. No one could reach her. I visited one day to drop off a box of chocolates. Grandma Rosie rocked slowly in her chair with large headphones over her ears, staring out the window, watching the snow fall. I couldn't tell if she knew I was there. I walked over and placed the chocolates on a small table, and her hand suddenly reached across and snatched my wrist. Shh, she whispered. Listen. Grandma Rosie leaned in close and I put my ear to hers I lifted up the cup of her headphone and listened There was only static I was about to speak but she covered my mouth with her hand Listen closer, she said I did, but all I heard was more static Soon they will come, she Mm. said They will come to take me away This freaked me out a little, and I went home. I told my (laughs) mom and dad about what happened, but they didn't think it was that weird. They're mistaken, all right? I kept thinking about it. One night, I couldn't sleep, so I buzzed my friend Abby on our walkie-talkies. We live across the street, and she somehow knew all about 89.1. She told me it was this old legend in our town, and you needed two things to explore the legend further. A radio and a closet with the door slightly open. Face away from the closet, tune in to 89.1, and listen very closely. At some point through the static, you'll hear the faint sounds of an organ, distant screams, and the dragging of metal chains along a gravelly surface. The open doorway is an invitation. Keep your eyes closed, and only if you keep your eyes closed a figure will appear and drag you into the closet. (gasps) From there, your fate is unknown. Mm. How do you know this? I asked. I've heard about it, she said. Don't tell anyone. The less people that know, the better. I looked out my window and saw Abby in her bedroom. She put her finger up to her lips, which is scary enough, right? Uh, This is our secret, the walkie-talkie buzzed. For the next few days, I kept thinking about the ritual and Grandma Rosie. Why would she be playing the game? Why did she want to be dragged to an unknown fate? I again told my parents I was worried about Grandma Rosie. They were very dismissive. Ever since Grandpa died, I think she wants to let go, my mom said. She wants to be with him. Which is so sad. My Grandma. (laughs) I wanted to know more, so I decided to try the game myself. It was late at night, and I opened my closet door just a crack. I sat on my bed with my back to the closet, turned my radio to 89.1, and put on my headphones. Mm -hmm. I heard the static, and I closed my eyes. I sat there for a long time, focusing very hard on the static. The longer I sat there, the more it felt like my room was shrinking, Mm -hmm. kind of like the space was filling up with something else, Mm -hmm. like I wasn't alone. In my headphones, I heard the distant organ, and I heard the screams that seemed far away, but sounded like they were getting closer. (laughs) The screeching of the metal began, and then I heard a voice. Open your eyes! I jumped from my bed, very startled. Abby was laughing hysterically through the walkie-talkie. I looked around my bedroom. I was alone. What a (laughs) b-hole. Right? I looked out the window and saw Abby smiling and giggling. She brought the walkie-talkie up to her mouth. 
I totally scared you, she said. There's no one there. You are such a wuss. I noticed the closet door. It was wide open. The static of 89.1 hissed in my headphones. I was only joking, the walkie-talkie chirped, but I wasn't so sure it was a joke. Grandma Rosie died two weeks later in her sleep. Her time had come, and I was done fooling around with legends and superstitions. Jake's story was the most interesting of the bunch. His writing needed some tightening, sure, but the ideas were there. A mysterious legend, sentimental characterizations, and an ambiguous ending. I truly thought he had invented the whole thing until I read Kate's submission. Oh, God. So this is Kate's flash fiction. Panic. Fear. No one would believe me. Not ever. I told him I was joking about everything. It helps me sleep at night. But I know what I saw. A young boy, a ritual, and death. (gasps) Death itself. A black death with a clutching grip, an entity that surrounds its victim, dragging a companion to its secret and eternal lair. But I was joking, joking all along, which made it okay. I had to know, no more. I went to her room. It felt recently vacated, like the plug had just been pulled from the sink. Headphones on the floor. Static. Nothing but static. Noises from the closet. Labored breathing. Fingernails squeaking on the door from the inside. Mm. I clutched the handle. Something. Something else. Something dark. Can't open it. Won't open it. Refuse to let it out. I slowly back away. A tiny voice squeaking. Help me. Static echoing in the small room. Nothing but static. I close the door on my way out. Won't let it out. Won't tell. Will never tell. My story doesn't exist. It's simply not there. It's nothing but static. Uh, horrifying. Jesus. (laughs) Here, I had two seemingly intertwined stories. Jake's more traditional folklore story and Kate's personalized flash fiction, focusing on emotion, regret, and secrets. Perhaps I'd been swimming in urban legends too long, or maybe I'd been the victim of too many horrendous student essays and stories to count, but I couldn't shake the notion. This seems real. A few days after Halloween, I kept Kate after school. I wanted to know more. Specifically, was she the Abby character in Jake's story? And was she confessing to visiting the grandmother in her own piece? I pulled out Kate's flash fiction and asked about how she wrote it. What was her inspiration? She shrugged. I guess it's avant-garde. I was just experimenting with ideas. Do you like it? I nodded. It was an interesting piece, I told her. Have you ever heard of 89.1? Kate asked me. I started to speak, but couldn't. A few words sputtered out, but were interrupted by Kate's laughing. Oh my gosh, Mr. Patrick. The whole thing was just a joke. Kate explained how she and Jake conspired to write multiple viewpoints of the same story, partially as a creative writing exercise, but mainly just to screw with me. The whole thing was made up. It was a Halloween prank. (gasps) We... So got you, Mr. Patrick, Kate laughed. Uh, I smiled uncomfortably. (laughs) It was a good one, and yes, they got me. I told her that I enjoyed her piece. Let's continue developing your avant-garde writing and enjoy your Halloween. But something didn't feel right. I had drinks with a veteran freshman English instructor, me the first-year teacher in a new town, and he the wily old mentor. I told him about the assignment and the stories Jake and Kate turned in. He laughed and thought about it a bit more. 
It just seems off, he said. You said Jake and Kate conspired to play a joke? I mean, they were thick as thieves in my class at the start of the school year, but in the fall, they stopped talking. Wouldn't even look at each other anymore. Had some sort of falling out, but I guess they made up. For the next few weeks, I watched Jake and Kate closely, in my class and in the hallways. They didn't speak once, never even looking at each other. I scheduled a story conference with Jake and let him know how much I'd enjoyed his growth as a writer, especially his Halloween flash fiction piece. I grinned and told him that his prank with Kate had totally burned me. Jake smiled awkwardly. We got you, huh? He said. It was Kate's idea. Everything was made up, he claimed. There was no 89.1, and he had no grandmother who passed away in a home. All of the characters and situations were straight, 100% fiction. I told him good job and to keep writing. Still, the situation seemed to miss, like it was missing part of the act. Was it possible that these two were so committed to screwing with me that they wouldn't even speak at school? <laughs> or maybe they were dating and didn't want anyone else to know, so they played it cool in the hallways? They were 15-year-old kids, after all. That seemed reasonable. Yeah. But it was keeping me awake at night. Nothing else mattered. Nothing else mattered. <laughs> Nothing else mattered. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I taught during the day, and I obsessed over the stories in the evening. Mm. News, sports, and current events faded into the background. The real world slipped away, and I pushed forward. Armed with a couple of possible last names, thank you, school records, <laughs> I, I called senior citizen homes in the area. I was trying to track down my mom's old friend, Rosie, I told them. Each phone call followed the same script. The receptionist went through the files and found nothing. No one there by either last name I had. I scoured the internet, and I spent too much time in the stacks of the local library. I found no folklore or urban legends relating to 89.1, and each time I felt like quitting, I pulled out my photocopy of Kate's story. She had visited Jake's grandmother. It simply felt so real, I knew it wasn't fake. In a last-ditch effort, I spent a lot of time alone in my bedroom, listening to the static of 89.1 with my eyes closed and the door slightly ajar. I'd hone in on the static, and I'd listen deeply and intently for the chimes of the organ, the harsh and troubled screams in the distance, and the clinkety-clink of metal chains. Sometimes I'd think it was there, and I just had to focus a little harder. And I'd sense a presence in my bedroom about to creep out of my closet, the dark mist waiting to drag me away. I wanted it to come, because I wanted the story to be real. But it didn't come. One day at school, I saw Jake and Kate smiling and laughing at Jake's locker. I walked past them, and Kate winked at me. That was a clincher. I finally succumbed to the notion that I'd been had. It was over. I ended my search for 89.1. I had drinks again with my colleague, many drinks this time, and I drunkenly told him everything I'd been doing. He found my investigation ridiculous and ultimately dangerous. <laughs> yeah. Right? <laughs> you like stories too much, he said. If I didn't know any better, it's almost like you're trying to write one of your own. Just let it go. I pulled out the photocopied stories from my back pocket and pressed them down in the bar, because apparently he still had them. Jesus. All right. Uh, staining them with splashes of beer. Yeah. My colleague picked up Jake's story, and he took a look at it for the first time. His eyes skimmed the page, and they stopped cold. Wait, he said. You never told me about Abby. I shrugged. Abby was Kate, I told him. It was all part of the game. I wonder, 
he thought aloud to himself. Hmm. He laid it out for me. A year ago, about ten months before I moved into town, an eighth grader named Abby had gone missing. Seemingly vanished into thin air. One minute she was alone in her room, and the next minute she was gone. Some suspected that she ran away, but there were no clues. No evidence of foul play, no suspicious or shady family members or neighbors. She was simply gone. I read Kate's piece again, and my heart sank. The whole time I assumed it was about her visiting the grandmother, but maybe I was wrong. Maybe the squeaks and pleas coming from the closet were coming from Abby. Kate never specified who she was visiting or where she was. I read the avant-garde flash fiction one more time, honing in on every word just to be sure, and at that moment, everything changed. Mm. I spoke to the school administration, they contacted the authorities, and the police had conversations with Jake and Kate. It went nowhere. It didn't matter that Abby had lived across the street from Jake. It didn't matter that we had words on paper. They were just stories, the kids said. Only stories. Complete fiction. Jake had no grandparents in a home anyway. They were sorry they'd scared anyone. They were Halloween stories, after all, and they'd been pretty ambiguous stories at that. Jake even tearfully apologized for naming a fictional character after a missing girl. It hadn't crossed his mind. Mm -hmm. And I was now the monster for dragging two innocent kids into this mess. The staff ostracized me, and the town crucified me. I was done. I left the teaching profession soon after that. I walked out of the school holding my small crate of supplies, and Kate smirked at me with a knowing glance through the first floor window. I haven't seen her since. I didn't take much with me, but I did take the photocopies of the stories. I pull them out occasionally and relive the past, and sometimes, late at night, I'll get a fire in my belly and a burning desire to travel back to that small Wisconsin town. Maybe Grandma Rosie was a great aunt, the Jake's family referred to as Grandma. Or maybe it was an elderly family friend. Maybe I missed something about the missing girl, about 89.1, about Kate's intentions. Perhaps I can try the ritual a few more times just to see what happens. Or maybe it's just all bullshit. It was ten years ago, and I'm probably the only one that thinks there's a shred of truth in these stories. I'd be wasting my time. But it still keeps me up at night, the slim chance that it's all true, and oftentimes the idea of it is something I contemplate more than what really happened to Abby and the grandmother in the story. If it is true, why did the kids write it all down like that? I don't have a good answer. I'll never have one. I suppose, just like me, they really just enjoy a good story. Jesus. <laughs> yeah. Right? <laughs> so that's um also horrifying. Yeah. Just a little bit. Mm-hmm. Just a little bit. And again with the sounds behind a door. Right. Specifically like the closet door. Yeah. That's so scary because my closet door doesn't close all the way. So <laughs> it's going to get Is it because you have too many things in there? Um. Yes. I think so. <laughs> <laughs> that's a you problem. <laughs> oh. <laughs> I don't like it. Mm-hmm. I, I mean, I like that, but it's, I don't like it. Boogie. Okay, is it my turn again? Mm-hmm. This one is called The Witch <gasps> by Shirley Jackson. Love it. The coach was so nearly empty that the little boy had a seat all to himself, and his mother sat across the aisle on the seat next to the little boy's sister, a baby <laughs> with a piece of toast in one hand and a rattle in, in the other. She was strapped securely to the seat so she could sit up and look around, and whenever she began to slip slowly sideways, 
the strap caught her and held her halfway until her mother turned around and straightened her again. <laughs> the little boy was looking out the window and eating a cookie, and the mother was reading quietly, answering the little boy's questions without looking up. We're on a river, the little boy said. <laughs> this is a river and we're on it. <laughs> Fine, his mother said. <laughs> we're on a bridge over a river, the little boy said to himself. The few other people in the coach were sitting at the other end of the car. If any of them had occasion to come down the aisle, the little boy would look around and say hi, and the stranger would usually say hi back, and sometimes ask the little boy if he were enjoying the train ride, or even tell him he was a fine big fellow. <laughs> These comments annoyed the little boy, and he would turn irritably back to the window. <laughs> There's a cow, he would say, or sighing. How far do we have to go? Not much longer now, his mother said each time. Once the baby, who was very quiet and busy with her rattle and toast, which the mother would renew constantly, fell over too far sideways and banged her head. She began to cry, and for a minute there was noise and movement around the, mo around the mother's seat. The little boy slid down from his own seat and ran across the aisle to pet his sister's feet and beg her not to cry. And finally, the baby laughed and went back to her toast, and the little boy received a lollipop from his mother mm. and went back to the window. I saw a witch, he said to his mother after a minute. There was a big, old, ugly, old, bad old witch outside. <laughs> Fine, his mother said. A big, old, ugly witch, and I told her to go away, and she went away. The little boy went on in a quiet narrative to himself. Mm. She came and said, I'm going to eat you up. And I said, no, you're not. And I chased her away, the bad old mean witch. Mm -hmm. He stopped talking and looked up as the outside door of the coach opened and a man came in. He was an elderly man with a pleasant face under white hair. His blue suit was only faintly touched by the disarray that comes from a long train trip. He was carrying a cigar and when the little boy said hi, the man gestured at him with the cigar and said, Hello yourself, son. He stopped just beside the little boy's seat and leaned against the back, looking down at the little boy who craned his neck to look upward. What you looking for out that window? the man asked. Witches, the little boy said promptly. <laughs> Same. <laughs> Bad old mean witches. I see, the man said. Find many? My father smokes cigars, the little boy said. All men smoke cigars, the man said. Someday you'll smoke a cigar, too. Ew. I'm a man already, the little boy said. <laughs> How old are you, the man asked. The little boy, at the eternal question, looked at the man suspiciously for a minute and then said, Twenty-six. Eight hundred and forty-eight. Forty-eighty. Eight hundred and forty eighty. His mother lifted her head from the book. Four, she said, smiling fondly at the little boy. Is that so? The man said politely to the little boy. Twenty-six, he nodded, his head at the mother across the aisle. Oh, is that so? The man said politely to the little boy. Twenty-six, he nodded his head at the mother across the aisle. Is that your mother? The little boy leaned forward to look and then said, yes, that's her. What's your name? The man asked. The little boy looked suspicious again. Mr. Jesus, he said. 
<laughs> Johnny, the little boy's mother said. She caught the little boy's eye and frowned deeply. That's my sister over there, the little boy said to the man. She's twelve and a half. Do you love your sister, the man asked. The little boy stared, and the man came around the side of the seat and sat down next to the little boy. Listen, the man said. Shall I tell you about my little sister? The mother, who had looked up anxiously when the man sat down next to her little boy, mm -hmm. went peacefully back to her book. Tell me about your sister, the little boy said. Was she a witch? <laughs> Maybe, the man said. Mm -hmm. The little boy laughed excitedly, and the man leaned back and puffed at his cigar. Once upon a time, he began, I had a little sister just like yours. The little boy looked up at the man, nodding at every word. My little sister, the man went on, was so pretty and so nice that I loved her more than anything else in the world. So shall I tell you what I did? The little boy nodded more vehemently, and the mother lifted her eyes from her book and smiled, listening. I bought her a rocking horse and a doll and a million lollipops, the man said, and then I took her and put my hands around her neck, and I pinched her, and I pinched her until she was dead. Mm. The little boy gasped, and the mother turned around, her smile fading. Mm. She opened her mouth and then closed it again as the man went on. And then I took her, and I cut her head off. Mm. And I took her head. Did you cut her all in pieces? The little boy asked breathlessly. Ugh. I cut off her head and her hands and her feet and her hair and her nose, the man said. And I hit her with a stick and I killed her. <gasps> Wait a minute, the mother said. <laughs> the baby fell over sideways just at that minute. And by the time the mother had set her up again, the man was going on. And I took her head and I pulled out her hair. And your little sister, the boy prompted eagerly. My little sister, the man said firmly. And I put her head in a cage with a bear and the bear ate it all up. <laughs> ate her head all up, the boy asked. <laughs> The mother put her book down and came across the aisle. She stood next to the man and said, Just what do you think you're doing? The man looked up courteously and she said, Get out of here. Did I frighten you? The man said. He looked down at the little boy and nudged him with an elbow and he and the little boy laughed. Mm. This man cut up his little sister, the little boy said to his mother. I can very easily call the conductor, the mother said to the man. The conductor will eat my mommy, the little boy said. We'll chop her head off. And little sister's head, too, the man said. Mm -hmm. He stood up, and the mother stood back to let him get out of the seat. Don't ever come back in this car, she said. My mommy will eat you, the little boy said to the man. She will. <laughs> <laughs> the man laughed, and the little boy laughed, and then the man said, Excuse me, to the mother, and went past her out of the car. When the door had closed behind him, the little boy said, How much longer do we have to stay on this old train? Not much longer, the mother said. She stood looking at the little boy, wanting to say something. And finally she said, You sit still and be a good boy. You may have another lollipop. The little boy climbed down eagerly and followed his mother back to her seat. She took a lollipop from a bag in her pocketbook and gave it to him. What do you say? she asked. Thank you, the little boy said. Did that man really cut his little sister up in pieces? He was just teasing, the mother said, and added urgently, just teasing. Probably, the little boy said. With his lollipop, he went back to his own seat 
and settled himself to look out the window again. Probably he was a witch. <gasps> the end. <laughs> Isn't that weird? Yeah, it's such a, yeah, creep, like, weird one. Like, yeah. <laughs> you forget how strangers can be creeps. Right. <laughs> Until you think of that. <laughs> so, um, yeah, I have another one. This one's a little terrifying. Good. 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 <laughs> it's written by Seven Hells. Oh. Um, but the word seven, instead of having a V, it has a, a number seven in it. Like the movie Seven? Yes. Uh-huh. Wow. Uh, yeah, really tricky. <laughs> and uh, it's called My Baby. Oh, God. Very, very short. Oh, God. My husband and I are laying in bed one night when we heard a noise. Nothing crazy, just a small rustling noise. We argue over who should check it out, deciding it was nothing, and then tried to get back to sleep. <laughs> heard the noise again. Mm-mm. What the hell? You go. No, you go. Sorry, my life. <laughs> um, while we were arguing, in whispers, because my daughter's bedroom has an adjoining door, we heard it again near the foot of our bed. <laughs> I, turned on, I turned on my phone to use it as a light. And saw my daughter on the floor. She was on all fours, cocking her head, turning her face toward the light at a most disturbing angle. And then fucking skittered on all fours back to her room and into her bed. My husband and I were absolutely horrified, terrified, pissing ourselves. (laughs) She was sleepwalking or crawling and had no recollection. She continues... To do creepy uh, sleepwalky things like that for years. Uh, usually while we're watching scary movies or lying in bed in the dark. Kids are the worst. <laughs> That's it. That was like the whole story. Oh my but God. it was terrifying. I hate crawling <laughs> so much. It's my least favorite thing in scary oh movies. Aside yeah. from like uh, hair and nails and teeth. <laughs> <laughs> There's so many things. <laughs> Uh, so that one's terrifying. Ooh. I also have one. I don't know how scary it is. Um, so this one's called The Psychiatrist. Uh-oh. And it was on, oh my gosh, it's on this website. It's called scaryforkids.com. <laughs> and then it has, like, um, up in the little banner on top, it says, scary for kids. And then underneath in smaller letters, even scarier for adults. Which is <laughs> just, just funny. Yikes. Um, yeah, okay, so it's called The Psychiatrist. I have one of those. Uh, it is, oh, huh. oh la-di-da. <laughs> is this, this about you? I don't know. Is it going to make me not want to go see my psychiatrist? No, 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 no not at all. Okay. So this, uh, it gives like a little bit of background. It says it's a combination of two different Japanese stories. Oh. Yeah. I'm a psychiatrist by profession, and over the course of my career, I have dealt with many people who have strange and unusual problems. However... One case in particular disturbed me more than others. There was a family of three who lived next door to me. They were a married couple in their 60s, and they had a son who was about 30 years old. The son was what we call in Japan a hikikomori, which is somebody who is introverted, reclusive, and isolated, Mm. someone who is withdrawn from social contact. Mm. We never saw the son. People who are hikikomori 
usually lock themselves away in their rooms and avoid others. Sure. I didn't hear about this condition directly from his parents. I assumed they didn't want to discuss it. In Japan, people are very concerned about appearances, and having a son who is a hikikomori is an embarrassment. Mm -hmm. As the days passed, their son went out less and less. Eventually, he never came out of the house at all. Every night from his bedroom window, the furious voice of his mother could be heard screaming and shouting at him. Whenever I met the poor woman, she smiled and said hello, but the strain was showing on her face. Mm. She became pale and haggard. It had been almost six years since anyone had seen the son. Oh my god. Right. <laughs> One day, the father knocked on my door and asked me to come to his house. He knew I was a psychiatrist, and since we were neighbors, I decided to do what I could to help the family. When we got to the front door, the mother was there waiting for us. She led me upstairs to her son's room. She banged on the door with her fist and shouted, We're coming in! Then she burst into the room and shrieked, Are you going to sleep forever? Get up, you lazy good-for-nothing! Before I knew it was happening, she grabbed a golf club and oh. started beating the sleeping figure oh. under the covers. Oh for a God. moment, I was so struck dumb as she rained down blow after blow. Then... I sprang into action, grabbed the golf club, and wrestled her out of the room. Oh, my God. I hurried back inside to check on her son's injuries, but when I pulled back the bed covers, I couldn't believe my eyes. Lying beneath the sheets was a mummified corpse. I stood there in absolute astonishment, staring at the pile of bones and leathery old skin. The father approached me, hanging his head in shame. It was my wife that I wanted you to see, he said. It's been going on for years. I can't take it anymore. Oh my god. <laughs> Surprise. <laughs> it's a dead body. Ooh. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, so my last story is called Royal Jelly by Roald Dahl. Oh, I know him. Yeah. yeah. Matilda and mm -hmm. Charlie and the Chocolate Factory and stuff. Yeah. Yeah. He wrote some spooky stuff. Who knew? Who knew? Not me. Not me. It worries me to death, Albert. It really does, Mrs. Taylor said. She kept her eyes fixed on the baby who was now lying absolutely motionless in the crook of her left arm. I just know there's something wrong. The skin on the baby's face had a pearly, translucent quality and was stretched very tightly over the bones. Try again, Albert said. It won't do any good. You have to keep trying, Mabel, he said. She lifted the bottle out of the saucepan of hot water and shook a few drops of milk onto the inside of her wrist, testing for temperature. Come on, she whispered. Come on, my baby. Wake up and take a bit more of this. There was a small lamp on the table close by that made a soft yellow glow all around her. Please, she said, just take a weeny bit more. <laughs> the husband watched her over the top of his magazine. She was half dead with exhaustion. He could see that, and the pale, oval face, usually so grave and serene, had taken on a kind of pinched and desperate look. But even so, the drop of her head, as she gazed down at the child, was curiously beautiful. You see, she murmured, it's no good. She won't have it. She held the bottle up to the light, squinting at the calibrations. One ounce again. That's all she takes. No, it isn't even that. It's only three quarters. It's not enough to keep body and soul together. 
Albert, it really isn't. It worries me to death. I know, he said. If only they could find out what was wrong. There's nothing wrong, Mabel. It's just a matter of time. Of course there's something wrong. Dr. Robinson says no. Look, she said, standing up. You can't tell me it's natural for a six-week-old child to weigh less, less by more than two whole pounds, mm. than she did when she was born. Oh, my gosh. Just look at those legs. They're nothing but skin and bone. The tiny baby lay limply on her arm, not moving. Dr. Robinson said you was to stop, wor stop worrying, Mabel. So did that other one. Ha, she said. Isn't that wonderful? I'm to stop worrying. Now, Mabel, what does he want me to do? Treat it as some sort of joke? He didn't say that. I hate doctors. I hate them all, she cried, and she swung away from him and walked quickly out of the room towards the stairs, carrying the baby with her. Albert Taylor stayed where he was and let her go. In a little while, he heard her moving about in the bedroom directly over his head, quick, nervous footsteps going tap, 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 on the linoleum above. Soon the footsteps would stop, and then he would have to get up and follow her, and when he went into the bedroom, he would find her sitting beside the cot as usual, staring at the child and, cry and crying softly to herself and refusing to move. She's starving, Albert, he would, she would say. Of course she's not starving. She is starving. I know she is. And Albert? Yes? I believe you know it, too, but you won't admit it. Isn't that right? Every night now was like this. Last week, they had taken the child back to the hospital, and the doctor had examined it carefully and told them that there was nothing the matter. It took us nine years to get this baby, Mabel had said. I think it would kill me if anything should happen to her. That was six days ago, and since then it had lost another five ounces. Mm. But worrying about it wasn't going to help anybody, Albert Taylor told himself. One simply had to trust the doctor on a thing like this. He picked up the magazine that was still lying on his lap and glanced idly down the list of contents to see what it had to offer this week. One, among the bees in May. Two, honey cookery. Three, the bee farmer and his bee farm. Four, experiences in the control of Nozema. Mm -hmm. Five, the latest on royal jelly. Six, this week in the apiary. Seven, the healing power of propolis. Eight, regurgitations. Ew. <laughs> Nine, British beekeepers annual dinner. What a weird, this Ten, is a weird mix. Association news. It's a bee magazine. <laughs> okay. <laughs> <laughs> All his life, Albert Taylor had been fascinated by anything that had to do with bees. <sighs> As a small boy, he often used to catch them in his bare hands and go running with them into, into the house to show his mother, and sometimes he would put them on his face and let them crawl about over his cheeks and neck, and the astonishing thing about it was that he never got stung. On the contrary, the bees seemed to enjoy being with him. They never tried to fly away, and to get rid of them, he would have to brush them off gently with his fingers. Even then, they would frequently return and settle again on his arm or hand or knee, any place where the skin was bare. 
As he grew older, Albert Taylor's fascination with bees developed into an obsession, and by the time he was 12, he had built his first hive. The following summer, he had captured his first swarm. Two years later, at the age of 14, he had no less than five hives standing neatly in a row against the fence in his father's small backyard. He never had to use smoke when there was work to do inside the hive, and he never wore gloves on his hands or a net over his head. Clearly, there was some strange sympathy between this boy and the bees, and down in the village, in the shops and pubs, they began to speak about him with a certain kind of respect, and people started coming up to his house to buy honey. When he was 18, he had rented one acre of rough pasture, and there he had set out to establish his own business. Now, 11 years later, he was still in the same spot, but he had six acres of ground instead of one, 240 well-stocked hives, and a small house he'd built mainly with his own hands. He had married at the age of 20, and that, apart from the fact that it had taken them over nine years to get a child, had also been a success. In fact, everything had gone pretty well for Albert until this strange little baby girl came along and started frightening them out of their wits by refusing to eat properly and losing weight every day. He looked up from the magazine and began thinking about his daughter. This evening, for instance, when she had opened her eyes at the beginning of the feed, he had gazed into them and seen something that frightened him to death. A kind of misty, vacant stare, as though the eyes themselves were not connected to the brain at all, but were just lying loose in their sockets like a couple of small gray marbles. Mm. Did those doctors really know what they were talking about? One could always take her along to another hospital, somewhere in Oxford, perhaps. He might suggest that to Mabel when he went upstairs. He could still hear her moving around in the bedroom, but she must have taken off her shoes now and put on slippers because the noise was very faint. He switched his attention back to the magazine and went on with his reading. He finished the article called Experiences in the Control of Nozema, then turned over the page and began reading the next one the latest on royal jelly. He doubted very much whether there would be anything in this that he didn't know already. What is this wonderful substance called royal jelly? Royal jelly is a glandular secretion produced by the nurse bees to feed the larvae immediately after they have hatched from the egg. The pharyngeal glands of bees produce this substance in much the same way as the mammary glands of vertebrates produce milk. The fact is of great biological interest because no other insects in the world are known to have evolved such a process. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> just, just facts. <laughs> All old stuff, he told himself, but for want of anything better to do, he continued to read. Royal jelly is fed in concentrated form to all bee larvae for the first three days after hatching from the egg. But beyond that point, for all those who are destined to become drones or workers, this precious food is greatly diluted with honey and pollen. On the other hand, the larvae which are destined to become queens are fed throughout the whole of their larva period on a concentrated diet of pure royal jelly. Hence the name. Hmm. Above him, up in the bedroom, the noise of footsteps had stopped altogether. The house was quiet. Royal jelly must be a substance of tremendous nourishing power, for on this diet alone, the honeybee larva increases in weight 1,500 times in five days. Whoa. 
This is as if a seven and a half pound baby should increase in that time to five tons. What? Giant baby. Bees are crazy. <laughs> Albert Taylor stopped and read that sequence again. He read it a third time. This is as if a seven and a half pound baby. Mabel, he cried, jumping up from his chair. Mabel, come here. He went out into the hall and stood at the foot of the stairs, calling for her to come down. There was no answer. He ran upstairs and switched on the light on the landing. The bedroom door was closed. He crossed the landing and opened it and stood in the doorway, looking into the dark room. Mabel, he said, come downstairs a moment, will you please? I've just had a bit of an idea. It's about the baby. The light from the landing behind him cast a faint glow over the bed, and he could see her dimly now, lying on her stomach with her face buried in the pillow and her arms up over her head. She was crying again. Mabel, he said, going over to her, touching her, so her shoulder. Please come down a moment. This may be important. Go away, she said. Leave me alone. Don't you want to hear about my idea? Oh, Albert, I'm tired, she sobbed. I'm so tired, I don't know what I'm doing anymore. I don't think I can go on. I don't think I could stand it. There was a pause. Albert Taylor turned away from her and walked slowly over to the cradle where the baby was lying. He peered in. What time is the next feed, he asked. Two o'clock, I suppose. And the one after that? Six in the morning. I'll do them both, he said. You go to sleep. She didn't answer. You get properly into bed, Mabel, and go straight to sleep, you understand? And stop worrying. I'm taking over completely for the next 12 hours. You'll give yourself a nervous breakdown going on like this. Yes, she said, I know. I'm taking the nipper and myself and the alarm clock into the spare room this very moment, so you just lie down and relax and forget all about us, right? Already he was pushing the cradle out through the door. Oh, Albert, she sobbed. Don't worry about a thing. Leave it to me. Albert? Yes? I love you, Albert. I love you too, Mabel. Now go to sleep. Albert Taylor didn't see his wife again until nearly 11 o'clock the next morning. Good gracious me, she cried, rushing down the stairs in dressing gown and slipper. Albert, just look at the time. I must have slept 12 hours at least. It's you. Nice. That's <laughs> me on a regular day. <laughs> Is everything all right? What happened? He was sitting quietly in his armchair, smoking a pipe and reading the morning paper. The baby was in his sort of carry cot on the floor at his feet, sleeping. Hello, dear, he said, smiling. She ran over to the cot and looked in. Did she take anything, Albert? How many times have you fed her? She was due for another one at 10 o'clock. Did you know that? Albert Taylor folded the newspaper neatly into a square and put it away on the side table. I fed her at 2 in the morning, he said and she took about half an ounce, no more. I fed her again at six, and she did a bit better that time, two ounces. Two ounces? Oh, Albert, that's marvelous. And we just finished the last feed 10 minutes ago. There's the bottle on the mantelpiece, only one ounce left. She drank three. How's that? He was grinning proudly, delighted with his achievement. The woman quickly got down on her knees and peered at the baby. Doesn't she look better? he asked eagerly. Doesn't she look fatter in the face? It may sound silly, the wife said, but actually I think she does. Oh, Albert, you're a marvel. How did you do it? 
She's turning the corner, he said. That's all it is. Just like the doctor prophesies, she's turning the corner. I pray to God you're right, Albert. Of course I'm right. From now on, you watch her go. The woman was gazing lovingly at the baby. You look a lot better yourself, too, Mabel. I feel wonderful. I'm sorry about last night. Let's keep it this way, he said. I'll do all the night feeds in the future. You do the day ones. She looked up at him across the cot, frowning. No, she said. Oh, no, I wouldn't allow you to do that. I don't want you to have a breakdown, Mabel. I won't, not now. I've had some sleep. Much better we share it. No, Albert, this is my job, and I intend to do it. Last night won't happen again. All right, he said. In that case, I'll just relieve you of the donkey work. Donkey work? <laughs> I'll do all the sterilizing and mixing of the food and getting everything ready. That'll help you a bit anyway. I've been thinking that up until last night, I've never had, never even raised a finger to help you with this baby. That isn't true. Oh, yes, it is. So I've decided that from now on, I'm going to do my share of the work. I'm going to be the feed mixer and the bottle sterilizer, right? It's very sweet of you, dear, but I really don't think it's necessary. Come on, he cried. Don't change the luck. I've done it the last three times, and just look what happened. When's the next one? Two o'clock, is it? Yes. It's all mixed, he said. Everything's all mixed and ready. All you've got to do when the time comes is go out three to the larder and <laughs> take it off the shelf and warm it up. That's some help, isn't it? The woman got up off her knees and went over to him and kissed him on the cheek. You're such a nice man, she said. I love you more and more every day. I know you. Later in the middle of the afternoon, when Albert was outside in the sunshine working among the hives, he heard her calling to him from the house. Albert, she shouted. Albert, come here. He started forward to meet her, wondering what was wrong. Oh, Albert, guess what? What? I've just finished giving her the two o'clock feed, and she's taken the whole lot. No. <laughs> no. No. Every drop of it. Oh, Albert, I'm so happy. She's going to be all right. She's turned the corner, just like you said. She came up to him and threw her arms around his neck and hugged him. And he clapped her on the back and laughed and said what a marvelous little mother she was. Naturally, there was a certain amount of suspense in the air as the time approached for the six o'clock feed. By 5.30, both parents were already seated in the living room, waiting for the moment to arrive. The bottle with the milk formula in it was standing in a saucepan of warm water on the mantelpiece. The baby was asleep in its carry cot on the sofa. At 20 minutes to 6, it woke up and started screaming its head off. There you are, Mrs. Taylor cried. She's asking for the bottle. Pick her up quick, Albert, and hand her to me. Give me the bottle first. He gave her the bottle, then placed the baby on the woman's lap. Cautiously, she touched the baby's lips with the end of the nipple. The baby seized the nipple between its gums and began to suck ravenously with a rapid, powerful action. Oh, Albert, isn't it wonderful? It's terrific, Mabel. In seven or eight minutes, the entire contents of the bottle had disappeared down the baby's throat. You clever girl. Mrs. Taylor said. <laughs> Clever girl. <laughs> <laughs> Four ounces again. Albert Taylor was leaning forward in his chair, peering intently into the baby's face. You know what, he said. She even seems as though she's put on a touch of weight already. What do you think? 
The mother looked down at the child. Doesn't she seem bigger and fatter to you, Mabel, than she was yesterday? Maybe she does, Albert. I'm not sure. Although, actually, there couldn't be any real gain in such a short time as this. Mm -hmm. The important thing is that she's eating normally. Mm -hmm. <laughs> she's turned to the corner, Albert said. I don't think you need to worry about her anymore. I certainly won't. You want me to go up and fetch the cradle back into our bedroom, Mabel? Yes, please, she said. Albert went upstairs and moved the cradle. The woman followed with the baby, and after changing its nappy, she laid it gently onto the bed. Then she covered it with sheet and blanket. Doesn't she look lovely, Albert, she whispered. Isn't that the most beautiful baby you've ever seen in your entire life? After they had finished feeding, the parents settled themselves in armchairs in the living room, Albert with his magazine and his pipe, Mrs. Taylor with her knitting. Albert, she said after a while. Yes, dear? What was it you were going to tell me last night when you came rushing up to the bedroom? You said you had an idea for the baby. Albert Taylor lowered his magazine onto his lap and gave her a long, sly look. Did I? he said. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yes. She waited for him to go on, but he didn't. What's the big joke? she asked. Why are you grinning like that? It's a joke, all right, he said. Tell it to me, dear. I'm not sure I ought to, he said. You might call me a liar. She had seldom seen him looking so pleased with himself as he was now, and she smiled back at him, egging him on. I'd just like to see your face when you hear it, Mabel, that's all. Albert, what is all this? He paused, refusing to be hurried. You do think the baby is better, don't you? he asked. Of course I do. You agree with me that all of a sudden she's feeding marvelously and looking 100% different? I do, Albert, yes. That's good, he said, the grin widening. You see, it's me that did it. Mm. Did what? I cured the baby. Yes, dear, I'm sure you did. <laughs> Mrs. Taylor went on with her knitting. You don't believe me, do you? Of course I believe you, Albert. I give you all the credit, every bit of it. Then how did I do it? Mm -hmm. Well, she said, pausing a moment to think, I suppose it's simply that you're a brilliant feed mixer. Ever since you started mixing the feeds, she's got better and better. You mean there's some sort of an art in mixing the feeds? Apparently there is. I'll tell you a secret, he said. Mm -hmm. You're absolutely right. Although, mind you, it isn't so much how you mix it that counts. It's what you put in. Oh, no. You realize that, don't you, Mabel? Mrs. Taylor stopped knitting and looked, sh looked up sharply at her husband. Albert, don't tell me you've been putting things into that child's milk. He sat there grinning. <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> well, have you or haven't you? It's possible, he said. I don't believe you. He had a strange, fierce way of grinning that showed his teeth. Albert, she said, stop playing with me like this. Yes, dear, all right. You haven't really put anything into her milk, have you? Answer me properly, Albert. This could be serious with such a tiny baby. The answer is yes, Mabel. Albert Taylor, how could you? Now don't get excited, he said. I'll tell you all about it if you really want me to. But for heaven's sake, keep your hair on. It was beer, she cried. I just know it was beer. <laughs> 
Don't be so daft, Mabel, please. Then what was it? Albert laid his pipe down carefully on the table beside him and leaned back in his chair. Tell me, he said, did you ever by chance happen to hear me mentioning something called royal jelly? I did not. It's magic, he said, pure magic. And last night I suddenly got the idea that if I was to put some of it into the baby's milk, how dare you? Now, Mabel, you don't even know what it is yet. I don't care what it is, she said. You can't go putting foreign bodies like that into a tiny baby's milk. You must be mad. It's perfectly harmless, Mabel. Otherwise, I wouldn't have done it. It comes from bees. Mm-hmm. I might have guessed that. <laughs> <laughs> and it's so precious that practically no one can afford to take it. When they do, it's only one little drop at a time. And how much did you give to our baby, might I ask? Ah, he said, that's the whole point. That's where the difference lies. I reckon that our baby, just in the last four feeds, has already swallowed about 50 times as much royal jelly as anyone else in the world has ever swallowed before. What? How about that? (laughs) Albert, stop pulling my leg. I swear it, he said proudly. She sat there staring at him, her brow wrinkled, her mouth slightly open. You know what this stuff actually costs, Mabel, if you want to buy it? There's a place in America advertising it for sale this very moment for something like $500 a pound jar. What? (laughs) $500. That's more than gold, you know. She hadn't the faintest idea what he was talking about. I'll prove it, he said, and he jumped up and went across to the large bookcase where he kept all of his literature about bees. He took down the latest issue of the American Bee Journal and turned to a page of small classified advertisements at the back. Here you are, he said, exactly as I told you. We sell royal jelly, $480 per pound jar wholesale. He handed her the magazine so she could read it herself. Now do you believe me? This is an actual shop in New York, Mabel. It says so. It doesn't say you can go stirring it into the milk of a practically newborn baby, she said. I don't know what's come over you, Albert, I really don't. It's curing her, isn't it? I'm not sure about that now. Don't be damn silly, Mabel. You know it is. Then why haven't other people done it with their babies? I keep telling you, he said, it's too expensive. Practically nobody in the world can afford to buy royal jelly just for eating, except maybe one or two multimillionaires. The people who buy it are the big companies that make women's face creams and things like that. They're using it as a stunt. They mix a tiny pinch into a big jar of face cream, and it's selling like hotcakes for absolutely enormous prices. They claim it takes out the wrinkles. And does it? Now how on earth would I know that, Mabel? (laughs) Anyway, he said, returning to his chair, that's not the point. The point is this. It's done so much good to our little baby just in the last few hours that I think we ought to go right on giving it to her. Now don't interrupt, Mabel. Let me finish. I've got 240 hives out there, and if I turn over maybe a hundred of them to making royal jelly, we ought to be able to supply her with all she wants. Albert Taylor, the woman said, stretching her eyes wide and staring at him. Have you gone out of your mind? Just hear me through, will you, please? I forbid it, she said. Absolutely. You're not to give my baby another drop of that horrid jelly, you understand? Now, Mabel, do, do me a favor, will you? He said, let me explain some of the marvelous things this stuff does. You haven't even told me what it is yet. 
All right, Mabel, I'll do that too. Will you listen? Will you give me a chance to explain it? She sighed and picked up her knitting once more. I suppose you might as well get it off your chest, Albert. Go on and tell me. He paused, a bit uncertain now how to begin. It wasn't going to be easy to explain something like this to a person with no detailed knowledge of apiculture at all. You know, don't you, he said, that each colony has only one queen? Yes. And that this queen lays all the eggs? Yes, dear, I know that much. All right. Now the queen can actually lay two different kinds of eggs. She can lay eggs that produce drones, and she can lay eggs that produce workers. Now, if that isn't a miracle, Mabel, I don't know what is. Yes, Albert, all right. The drones are the males. We don't have to worry about them. The workers are the females. So is the queen, of course. Now what happens is this. The queen crawls around on the comb and lays her eggs in what we call cells. She lays one egg to each cell, and in three days, each of these egg eggs hatches out a tiny grub. We call it larva. Now, as soon as this larva, larva appears, the nurse bees, their young workers, all crowd round and start feeding it like mad. And you know what they feed it on? Royal jelly, Mabel answered patiently. Right, he cried. That's exactly what they do feed it on. They get this stuff out of a gland in their heads and they start pumping it into the cell to feed to the larva. And what happens then? You want to know what happens then, he asked, wetting his lips. Mm. <laughs> I can hardly wait. <laughs> Royal jelly, he read aloud, must be a substance of tremendous nourishing power, for on this diet alone, the honeybee larva increases in weight 1,500 times in five days. How much? 1,500 times, Mabel. And you know what that means if you put it in terms of a human, human being? It means, he said, lowering his voice, leaning forward, fixing her with those small, pale eyes. It means that in five days, a baby weighing seven and a half pounds to start off with would increase in weight to five tons. For the second time, Mrs. Taylor stopped knitting. Now you mustn't take that too literally, Mabel. Who says I mustn't? It's just a scientific way of putting it, that's all. Very well, Albert, go on. But that's only half the story, he said. There's more to come. The really amazing thing about royal jelly, I haven't told you yet. I'm, go I'm going to show you now how it can transform a plain, dull-looking little worker bee with practically no sex organs at all into a great, big, beautiful, fertile queen. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Are you saying our baby is dull-looking and plain? She asked <laughs> sharply. Did you know that the queen bee and the worker bee, although they are completely different when they grow up, are both hatched out of exactly the same kind of egg? I don't believe that, she said. <laughs> it's as true as I'm sitting here, Mabel. Honest it is. Anytime the bees want a queen to hatch out of the egg instead of a worker, they can do it. How? Ah, he said, shaking a thick forefinger in her direction. That's just what I'm coming to. That's the secret of the whole thing. Now, what do you think it is, Mabel, that makes this miracle happen? Royal jelly, she answered. You already told me. Royal jelly it is, he cried, clapping his hands and bouncing up on his seat. His big, round face was glowing with excitement now, and two vivid patches of scarlet had appeared high up on each cheek. Here's how it works. I'll put it very simple for you. 
The bees want a new queen, so they build an extra large cell, a queen cell we call it, and they get the old queen to lay one of her eggs in there. The other 1,999 eggs she lays in ordinary worker cells. Now, as soon as these eggs hatch into larvae, the nurse bees rally round and start pumping in the royal jelly. All of them get it, workers as well as the queen. But here is the vital thing, Mabel, so listen carefully. Here's where the difference comes. The worker larvae only receive this special marvelous food for the first three days of their larval life. After the third day, they're put, they're put straight away onto more or less routine bees food, a mixture of honey and pollen. And then about two weeks later, they emerge from the cells as workers. But not so the larva in the queen cell. This one gets royal jelly all the way through its larval life. The nurse bees simply pour it into the cell, so much so in fact that the little larva is literally floating in it. And that's what makes it into a queen. You can't prove it, she said. Don't talk so damn silly, Mabel, please. Thousands of people have proved it time and time again. Famous scientists in every country around the world. All you have to do is take a larva out of a worker cell and put it in a queen cell. And just so long as the nurse bees keep it well supplied with royal jelly, then presto, it'll grow up into a queen. And what makes it more marvelous still is the absolutely enormous difference between a queen and a worker when they grow up. The abdomen is, di is a different shape. The sting is different. The legs are different. It's pretty hard to believe, she said, that a food can do all that. Of course it's hard to believe. It's another one of the miracles of the hive. <laughs> it, sounds like an, it sounds like an infomercial for <laughs> bees. And I love it. <laughs> it's my favorite thing. <laughs> he stood beside the bookcase with the magazine in his hand, smiling a funny little furtive smile of triumph, and his wife watched him, bewildered. He was not a tall man. He had a thick, plump, pulpy-looking body mm. that was built close to the ground on abbreviated legs. <laughs> Yuck. <laughs> the legs were slightly bowed. The head was huge and round, <laughs> covered with bristly, short-cut hair, mm. and the greater part of the face, now that he had given up shaving altogether, was hidden by a brownish-yellow fuzz about an inch long. Ew. He sounds so gross. But it also sounds like a bee, like a bee would look mm -hmm. if it were human. Mm -hmm. In one way and another, he was rather grotesque to look at. There was no <laughs> denying that. <laughs> Looking at him now as he buzzed around in front of the bookcase mm. with his bristly head and his hairy face and his plump, pulpy body, she couldn't help thinking that somehow, in some curious way, there was a touch of the bee about this man. Mm -hmm. Up until now, it had never occurred to her that her husband might look like a bee. It shocked her a bit. Mm -hmm. You know something, she said, staring at him but smiling a little all the same. You're getting to look just a teeny bit like a bee yourself, did you know that? He turned and looked at her. I suppose it's the beard mostly, she said. I do wish you'd stop wearing it. Even the color is sort of bee-ish, don't you think? What the hell are you talking about, Mabel? <laughs> Albert, she said, your language. Do you want to hear any more of this or don't you? Yes, dear, I'm sorry. I was only joking. Go on. 
He turned away again and pulled another magazine out of the bookcase and began leafing through the pages. Now just listen to this, Mabel. Still and Burdett found that a male rat, which hitherto had been unable to breed, upon receiving a minute daily dose of royal jelly, became a father many times over. Mm. Albert, she cried, the stuff is much too strong to give a baby. I don't like it at all. Nonsense, Mabel. Listen, Mrs. Taylor said, interrupting him. I think the baby's crying. Albert glanced up from his reading. Sure enough, a lusty yelling noise was coming from the bedroom above. She must be hungry, he said. His wife looked at the clock. Good gracious me, she cried, jumping up. It's past her time again already. You mix the feed, Albert, quickly, while I bring her down. I don't want to keep her waiting. In half a minute, Mrs. Taylor was back, carrying the screaming infant in her arms. Do be quick, Albert, she called, settling herself in the armchair and ranging the child on her lap. Please hurry. Albert entered from the kitchen and handed her the bottle of warm milk. It's just right, he said. You don't have to test it. She hitched the baby's head a little higher in the crook of her arm, then pushed the rubber teat straight into the wide-opening, yelling mouth. The baby grabbed the teat and began to suck. The yelling stopped. Mrs. Taylor relaxed. Oh, Albert, isn't she lovely? She's terrific, Mabel, thanks to the royal jelly. Now, dear, I don't want to hear another word about that nasty stuff. It frightens me to death. You're making a big mistake, he said. We'll see about that. The baby went on sucking the bottle. I do believe she's going to finish the whole lot again, Albert. I'm sure she is, he said. And a few minutes later, the milk was all gone. Oh, what a good girl you are, Mrs. Taylor cried, as very gently she started to withdraw the nipple. The baby sensed what she was doing and sucked harder, trying to hold on. The woman gave a quick little tug and plop, out it came. The baby yelled. Nasty old wind, Mrs. Taylor said, hoisting the child onto her shoulder and patting its back. Mm -hmm. It belched twice in quick succession. (laughs) There you are, my darling. You'll be all right now. For a few seconds, the yelling stopped. Then it started again. Keep belching her, Albert said. She's drunk it too quickly. His wife lifted the baby back onto her shoulder. She rubbed its spine. She changed it from one shoulder to the other. She lay, lay it on its stomach in her lap. She sat, she sat it up on her knee, but it didn't belch again, and the yelling became louder and more insistent every minute. Good for the lungs, Albert Taylor said, grinning. That's the way they exercise their lungs, Mabel. Did you know that? There, 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 the wife said, kissing it all over the face. There, there, there. She waited another five minutes, but not for one moment did the screaming stop. Change the nappy, Albert said. It's got a wet nappy, that's all it is. He fetched a clean one from the kitchen, and Mrs. Taylor took the old one off and put the new one on. This made no difference. Wah! 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 The baby yelled. You didn't stick the safety pin through the skin, did you, Mabel? Of course I didn't, she said, (laughs) feeling under the nappy with her fingers to make sure. The parents sat opposite one another in their armchairs, smiling nervously, watching the baby on the, mother, on the mother's lap, waiting for it to tire and to stop screaming. You know what? Albert said at last. What? I'll bet she's still hungry. I'll bet all she wants is another swig at that bottle. 
How about me fetching her an extra lot? I don't think we ought to do that, Albert. It'll do her good, he said, getting up from his chair. I'm going to warm her up a second helping. He went into the kitchen and was away for several minutes. When he returned, he was holding a bottle brimful of milk. I made her a double, he announced. Eight ounces, just in case. Albert, are you mad? Don't you know it's just as bad to overfeed as it is to underfeed? You don't have to give her the lot, Mabel. You can stop any time you like. Go on, he said, standing over her. Give her a drink. Mrs. Taylor began to tease the baby's lips with the end of the nipple. The tiny mouth closed like a trap over the rubber teat, and suddenly there was a silence in the room. The baby's whole body relaxed, and a look of absolute bliss came over its face as she started to drink. There you are, Mabel. What did I tell you? The woman didn't answer. She's ravenous, that's what she is. Just look at her suck. Mrs. Taylor was watching the level of milk in the bottle. It was dropping fast, and before long, three or four ounces out of the eight had disappeared. Mm. There, she said, that'll do. You can't pull it away now, Mabel. Yes, dear, I must. Go on, woman. Give her the rest and stop fussing. But Albert, she's finished, can't you see that? Go on, my beauty, he said. You finish that bottle. I don't like it, Albert, the wife said, but she didn't pull the bottle away. She's making up for lost time, Mabel. That's all she's doing. Mm-mm. Five minutes later, the bottle was empty. Slowly, Mrs. Taylor withdrew the nipple, and this time there was no protest from the baby. No sound at all. It lay peacefully on the mother's lap, the eyes glazed with contentment, the mouth half open, the lips smeared with milk. Twelve whole ounces, Mabel, Albert, Albert Taylor said. Three times the normal amount. Isn't that amazing? The woman was staring down at the baby, now, and now the old, anxious, tight-lipped look of the frightened mother was slowly returning to her face. Come here, Albert, she said. What? I said, come here. He went over and stood beside her. Take a good look and tell me if you see anything different. He peered closely at the baby. She seems bigger, Mabel, if that's what you mean. Bigger and fatter. Hold her, she ordered. Go on, pick her up. He reached out and lifted the baby up off the mother's lap. Good God, he cried. She weighs a ton. Exactly. Now isn't that marvelous, he cried, beaming. I'll bet she must be back to normal already. It frightens me, Albert. It's too quick. Nonsense, woman. It's that disgusting jelly that's done it. I hate that stuff. There's nothing disgusting about royal jelly, he answered, indignant. Don't be a fool, Albert. You think it's normal for a child to start putting on weight at this speed? You're never satisfied, he cried. You're scared stiff when she's losing, and now you're now you're absolutely terrified because she's gaining. What's the matter with you, Mabel? The woman got up from her chair with the baby in her arms and started towards the door. All I can say is, she said, it's lucky I'm here to see you don't give her any more of it. That's all I can say. She went out, and Albert watched her watched her through the open door as she crossed the hall to the foot of the stairs and started to ascend. And when she reached the third or fourth step, she suddenly stopped and stood quite still for several seconds as though remembering something. Then she turned and came down again rather quickly and re-entered the room. Albert, she said. Yes. I assume there wasn't any royal jelly in this last feed we've just given her. 
I don't see why you should assume that, Mabel. Albert! What's wrong? He asked, soft and innocent. Mm -hmm. How dare you, she cried. Albert Taylor's great bearded face took on a painted and puzzled look. I think you ought to be very glad she's got another big dose of it inside her, he said. The woman was standing just inside the doorway, clasping the sleeping baby in her arms and staring at her husband with huge eyes. She stood very erect, her body absolutely stiff with fury, her face paler, more tight-lipped than ever. You mark my words, Albert was saying. You're going to have a nipper there soon that'll win first prize in any baby show in the entire country. Hey, why don't you weigh her now and see what she is? You want me to get the scales, Mabel, so you can weigh her? The woman walked straight over to the large table in the center of the room and laid the baby down and quickly started taking off its clothes. Yes, she snapped, get the scales. Then she unpinned the nappy and she drew it away and the baby lay naked on the table. But Mabel, Albert cried, it's a miracle. She's as fat as a puppy. <laughs> Indeed, the amount of flesh the child had put on since the day before was astounding. The small sunken chest with the rib bones showing all over was now plump and round as a barrel, and the belly was bulging high in the air. Curiously, though, the arms and legs did not seem to have grown in proportion. Uh -uh. Still short and skinny, they looked like little sticks protruding out of a ball of fat. No, like a bee. <laughs> Look, Albert said, she's even beginning to get a bit of fuzz on the tummy to keep her warm. Mm. He put out a hand and, and was about to run the tips of his finger over the powdering of silky, yellowy-brown hairs that had suddenly appeared on the baby's stomach. Don't you touch her, the woman cried. She turned and faced him, her eyes blazing, and she looked suddenly like some kind of little fighting bird, with her neck arched over towards him, as though she were about to fly at his face and peck his eyes out. Now wait a minute, he said, retreating. You must be mad, she cried. Now wait just a minute, Mabel, will you please? Because if you're still thinking this stuff is dangerous, that is what you're thinking, isn't it? All right, then, listen carefully. I'll sh I shall now proceed to prove to you once and for all, Mabel, that royal jelly is absolutely harmless to human beings, even in enormous doses. For example, why do you think we had only half the usual honey crop last summer? Tell me that. His retreat, walking backwards, had taken him three or four yards away from her where he seemed to be more comfortable. The reason we had only half the usual crop last summer, he said slowly, lowering his voice, was because I turned 100 of my hives over to the production of royal jelly. You what? Ah, he whispered, I thought that might surprise you a bit. And I've been making it ever since right under your very nose. What? His small eyes were glinting at her, and a slow, sly smile was creeping around the corners of his mouth. You'll never guess the reason, either. I've been afraid to mention it up until now because I thought it might, well, sort of embarrass you. There was a slight pause. He had his hands clasped high in front of him, level with his chest, and he was rubbing one palm against the other, making a soft, scraping noise. You remember that bit I read to you out of the magazine? That bit about the rat? Let me see now. How does it go? Still and Burdett found that a male rat, which hitherto had been unable to breathe, mm. he hesitated, the grin, grin widening, showing his teeth. No. You get the message, Mabel? 
She stood quite still, facing mm -hmm. him. The very first time I ever read that sentence, I jumped straight out of my chair, and I said to myself, if it'll work with a lousy rat, I said, then there's no reason on earth why it shouldn't work with Albert Taylor. Mm. He paused again, craning his head forward and turning one ear slightly in his wife's direction, waiting for her to say something. But she didn't. And here's another thing, he went on. It made me feel so absolutely marvelous, Mabel, and so sort of completely different to what I was before that I went right on taking it after you'd announced the joyful tidings. Buckets of it I must have swallowed during the last 12 months. Oh my gosh, what a freak. <laughs> the big, heavy, haunted-looking eyes of the woman were moving intently over the man's face and neck. There was no skin showing at all on the neck, not even on the sides below the ears. The whole of it, to a point where it dis disappeared into the collar of the shirt, was covered all the way around with shortish hairs, yellowy-black. Mm. Mind you, he said, turning away from her, gazing lovingly now at the baby. It's going to work far better on that tiny infant than on a fully developed man like me. You've only got to look at her to see that, don't you agree? The woman's eyes traveled slowly downward and settled on the baby. The baby was lying naked on the table, fat and white and comatose, like some gigantic grub that was approaching the end of its larval life and mm. would soon emerge into the world complete with mandibles and wings. Mm -hmm. Why don't you cover it up, Mabel, he said. We don't want our little queen to catch a cold. Yeah. Oh my gosh. What a freak. That is so freaky. Right? I like it. <laughs> now I want some royal jelly. <laughs> I want to be a bee. <laughs> cool. Yeah. Well, yeah. So that was our next set of scary stories. Yeah. So thanks for listening. Yeah. Hopefully it spooked up your day. Hope so. And we will talk to you guys later. Okay. See you later, ghouls and boys. Bye. Bye. Hi. Hi. <laughs> Hi. <laughs> Hello. Hey. <laughs>